love songs. You know, that classic Barry White tune that comes on, you know, just makes you feel like in the mood for love. Right, all the way up to Taylor Swift, right, just put out a new album that's called Lover. Right, we write, we, songs are probably more about, as my son noticed the other day, country western songs or pop songs or whatever are all about relationships, usually gone bad. But before that, we have, this, we, we have this joyous wonder of love, that eros that just fills us like everything, just makes you want to sing, like, like water tastes better, you know, when you're in love. And so what's interesting to me is that as we, as we look at Scripture, there are so many places where, where it is, it's almost written like a love song. I mean, in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, it, it feels like a love song because it's very much written that way. But as we look at, especially in the beginning of things, in Genesis, we notice that it's very much written like a poem, and every love song has a, has, a, has a great refrain and a great hook, you know, and maybe even a bridge in there somewhere. And so as we've been exploring this question throughout the past couple of weeks, is, is God, the God that we follow, a God of love? You know, I've gone back to this Genesis creation story over and over again, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again. The reason why we're addressing this question that I've talked about is because out in the world today, the, the largest Christian voices that we hear for the most part and people's response to them who are not Christians is when they're asked, what does Christianity mean to you? When you hear the word Christian, what do you mean? The first thing that comes out of their mouth is hypocritical, angry, divisive. When, they, when you ask somebody what Jesus means to them, they say, oh, grace, forgiving, good teacher, if they don't know anything about, you know, faith or Christianity. They at least know those things. And so there's a big divide there, right? They'll know we are Christians by our love? Apparently not. Apparently they know we are Christians by our hate, hateful speech, by our anger, by our divisiveness, even within our churches, there's often this, an undercurrent of of angry voices that don't, doesn't feel like there's much, much love there. And so as I thought about how I wanted to, to come at this a little bit, I started to go back in the scripture and began to look, well, is God a God of love or not? I mean, do what, why, why do we believe that? Well, of course, in 1 John, it says God is love. It's about as plain, plainly written, plainly spoken as, as it can be, right? But it goes back to the beginning. Almost all the other creation stories in ancient times were really about stories of violence, about either one God fighting another and them being separated into the heavens and the earth, or a God tearing themselves apart, ripping themselves apart to establish the heavens and the earth. And so there's lots of this violence, and, and human beings are just sort of these playthings of the gods that just do, you know, just sort of do whatever the gods want them to do, and, and the gods manipulate them. And so as we have this in Genesis, we have this creation story that the Hebrews write or inspired to write. It's much more like a love song. You know, it starts out in the beginning when God created, you know, and there's, there's this beautiful stuff. And then, and, you know, God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. There's this, there's this repetitive nature to it. It's almost like that's the chorus or that's, or that's the bridge to the next thing. Then there was evening, there was morning, and that was the next day. 
And then very quickly, there comes this other refrain in there, and it says, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. Very quickly, the refrain is, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. And then at the very end, at the very end, as God has made humankind in God's image, um, he makes humankind in his image, in God's image, and it says, and it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. Tov me'od is the Hebrew. It was very good. God creates, not out of a desire to manipulate the people, not out of a desire to to make God's name more famous, but out of, a, out of love, to be in relationship with the people that God has created, to be in relationship with us, this God shows love. But of course we know, and you've heard me talk about them, but then there's this conflict right away in Genesis. Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3, biblical scholars? Come on now. There's a fruit involved, perhaps a slithery thing right? Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve disobey God. God says, don't eat of the the fruit of this tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, because then you'll know good and evil, and that's not, I don't think that's good for you. Well, guess what? They eat of the the fruit of the tree, and God says, well, you know, I just, I mean, I love you, but I I can't, you you disobeyed. I'm going to have to do what any good parent would do, and there's going to be, there's going to be repercussions, perhaps punishment even. So now, you're out of the garden, and life is going to be a lot more difficult. Partially that, that origin story of, of how things became so difficult for us, right? And so there's this, there's this conflict, there's this conflict between Genesis 1, not conflict necessarily, but there's this conflict between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 that Christians get mixed up in, because there are churches that get very focused on Genesis 1, and there are people that give every, that everything's good. We're all good. We can do no wrong. You know, we just we were made in God's image, and that's good, and it's wonderful. And then there's this. But then in Genesis three, it says, "Yes, but humans have this tendency to screw things up, to make things bad, to hurt each other." And so a lot of some churches get very focused on Genesis three. If, if you go to their church on, on a Sunday morning, you're going to hear about how bad you are. You know, that, that fire and damnation sort of sermon, you know? And, and even, and even if you've been there every, every week for 50, 60 years, the next Sunday you're going to come and you're going to hear about how horrible you are <laughs> and how you need to get right with God and how you need to be saved, right? Even if, you, even if you made your confession, you know, when you were a little bitty baby or something, you know? So there's this interesting thing in that that, that we get sort of focused. I think that it's, what I love about the, the Scripture is it's both and, we are this mixture of darkness and light. And that's what the Scripture reflects. But God then throughout the story of God with God's people, God continues to, to draw us back through love, draws us back into relationship with God's self through love, who all the time is saying, and I don't want you to just love me, I want you to love your neighbor. I want you to love the stranger. I want you to love the alien. I want you to love the immigrant. I want you to love the widows and the orphans. I want you to love all of those who are who are sort of on the edges of 
of society, all of those who are downtrodden and oppressed. These are the people that I especially want you to take heart with. And so God continues all the way through that. And and even when God in Leviticus puts in place these rules about sacrifices and and all that sort of of thing that the people did in ancient times in order to appease the gods, to be in relationship with God, God says, I don't, these sacrifices are not just a function. I mean, they're not just a thing that you do to do them. What they are to do is they're supposed to remind you to act in certain ways. And in fact, I'd rather not have your sacrifices. I'd rather have the mercy. I'd rather have the love. I'd rather have the relationships that you have with each other. And in some of the minor prophets, you hear that story over and over that God says, I don't want your sacrifices because they become an empty ritual. What I want is I want you to show mercy. What I want you to do is I, I want you to show love to your neighbor to the oppressed, to the downtrodden, to the foreigner, to the alien. It is, again, that is like a chorus throughout the Old Testament especially. And then, of course, we get to the New Testament and one of the most famous verses for for all of us, you know, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And not only that, verse 17, it says, and He didn't send His Son to condemn the world, Again, that's where we get this Genesis 3 emphasis. emphasis. It's like people get so, so bent, like, oh, the, the world is condemned. We, it's bad. All the people in it are bad. We're bad, bad, bad. So now we've got to get right with God, and then all of a sudden everything will be okay. But he didn't send the Son to condemn the world. He sent him to save it. And then he left a bunch of messed up people to do the job, Right? Because Jesus didn't put in place necessarily a theology, a book of theology. He didn't write anything in his own hand. It was all the people who were after him who were seeking to live out of that community, seeking to live out this community of love and mercy and grace and hope that wrote all these things down and that gave us then our marching orders in a sense, that showed us who God was through the lens and through the eyes and through the flesh of Jesus. And what we see there, in my opinion, and I think it's the Bible's opinion, is a God of love. And so they should know that we are Christians by our love. By how we care for each other, yes. By how we treat those who are lesser than in some people's eyes by how we treat those who are downtrodden and oppressed, by those who are hurting and hopeless. And so, as I thought about this, I thought about, well, what, is, what are some of the things that love does then, and, how, and how, do we, how do we engage it then as people who follow a God of love? What is it that we are supposed to do? How is it that we are supposed to live as followers of a God of love? Because that's really wonderful, and it sort of feels sort of soft and gooey. But here's the thing. Love is not a soft and gooey thing. Love is, has very hard edges at times. Because when you love somebody, just like if you're a parent of a child, it's like, you know, and your child, does, your child does something that they shouldn't do, you know, you can, you still love them when you send them to their room. You still love them when you make them go re- make reparations to the neighbor if they've, say, broken a window or something. You still love them when you, you, you know, when you make them go apologize for, for, for something that they've said that wasn't right. You still love them. 
So it has this very hard edge because, it, because love calls us to be accountable to the community, to each other. And it also calls us just to stay in relationship and not give up on each other. And so this very famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13 gets misused in marriage ceremonies all the time. Because it's not really about, it's not really about erotic love or marital love, that kind of relationship love. It really is about, because Paul had been writing to the Corinthians about their community. And they've got some things going on. Corinth was known as, I mean, apparently if you said that something had been Corinthianized back in the time, that meant that it had become morally corrupt. Because in the time before Paul's writing this, there were lots of temples in the city, and one of them, one of the gods that they worshipped, how you worshipped the gods was you had sex with prostitutes. So there were over a thousand prostitutes in this particular temple at one time. And so the city was just known as just this morally bankrupt kind of place where it was very easy to, to do things that most didn't think, you know, was things you should be doing, but you did it in the name of some god, so it was all fine. So it's very interesting. So they're having some problems in in Corinth because they're doing some things that Paul doesn't think are quite right because they're Greeks living in Corinth. And so he's been telling them all about these things that they haven't been doing very well. And then he goes into telling them, and, and each one of you has been given gifts to use in the community. Each one of you has different gifts according to the spirit that God gives them to you. You know this this sort of mantra about the body of Christ and how each person is a member of the body and each has a different function. And without without that person, the body is not whole and complete if they're not using their gifts in the community. So then he goes on to say, and that's great, and some of you have greater gifts than others, but if you speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels but don't have love, then you're just a noisy gong. You're a clanging cymbal. And if you have prophetic powers, if you can tell the future and you can understand all mystery and all knowledge, you've, you've got all this stuff. And if you have all faith, like you're just super convinced about things, but you don't have love, you're nothing. If I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. I'm guessing you can hear in this writing, what Paul is writing against. Because I'm sure people are doing this, you know, as they would say in a biblical way, they're lording it over the, somebody else. Well, I'm a, I speak in tongues and it's really wonderful. And I have that gift and you don't. Well, that's not what the gift is for. The gift is for bringing the community together, lifting the community up. And just as when, when you use your gifts within the community, you, you lift us all up. And when we say, well, well, that person's got this gift, they, they need, a, they need a, a larger place of honor, then no, we're going against what it means to have love sing in the midst of the community. And then it goes on, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And sometimes we read that and we think, well, that means, that means that I just need to be a welcome mat, right? Because it's not boastful, it's not rude, it bears all things. So I just, I just hunker down when people are mistreating me and I just love them. No. 
Because that's where that hard edge of love comes in. That's where we hold, people, we hold each other accountable. We don't do it in an arrogant way. We don't do it in a rude way. But we don't have to be people who have, get their you know, feet wiped on our face because we're a welcome mat. That's not what being a Christian, that's not what being a, one, someone who follows a God of love means. And what's interesting in this passage is that even though it doesn't quite, when it gets translated in English, quite sound this way, each one of these verbs is an active verb. It is an actionable sort of thing. You're supposed to be doing patience, doing kindness, not being envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. You're not to insist on your own way, not to rejoice in wrongdoing. Rejoice in the truth. It's an active sort of thing. And so it's not just like, oh, well, we, we just love people. We shower them with our prayers. Isn't that wonderful? No, it's, it's actions, like helping people out in the community, like coming around that, that, that person who is hurting, like reaching out beyond our walls to help people in the community, like taking our building and allowing people to be here who are working through their addictions so that they can be in recovery, like allowing other community groups to meet here who are doing good things in the neighborhood, like the TJ Vikings Fund, which is helping to support Thomas Jefferson High School, like Reestablished Richmond, who works with illegal refugees. You hear me talk about these groups all the time, but we do it not just because it's a nice thing to do. We do it because that's what God calls us to do. As a people of love, we are supposed to be helping people who are helping people. And we've got the gift of this building and the gift of all these people in order to to do some of those things. And what happens when we do that is love begins to sing. Love begins to sing in our hearts. We, We see people who are getting well. We receive these thank you notes from people whom we've helped. And it sings in our hearts and it lifts us up. I could just tell when I was reading that, I could... I could see some of you just nodding your head like, yeah, that feels good. And love sings in our hearts and in our lives in a way that leads us forward as people who follow this God of love. And so I want to leave you with this from Colossians 3. As you follow a God of love, as we follow a God of love, and we seek to learn how to be those lovers in Christ, listen to this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. This week, may love sing in this community, in your heart, in your life, as we seek to love and to serve this God of love. Amen.